Hello and welcome to another episode of the Oz Movie Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Make sure you check out my reviews that I published recently. Last week's review for Doctor Sleep, which after a second viewing last night, I can confirm is my favourite film of 2019 thus far. It's just one of those films that I just sat down and watched and really got to just enjoy myself. I very rarely get to have a cinematic experience where I can sit down and just enjoy every little aspect I've seen on screen. As a massive fan of Stephen King's works and the book in general, I am a huge fan of Dr. Sleep. Um, it's a strange novel, but I think Mike Flanagan does the source material justice. It does take its liberties and is definitely different, especially in the third act to what the book is. But at the same time, I had a fantastic time watching it. And as a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick's Shining film, I think Mike Flanagan does a great job of balancing both Stephen King's works as well as... Kubrick as uh, and feeling very natural and a great sequel to both I suppose and yeah it's a fantastic film so definitely go and check it out if you haven't already um, and 47 meters down on cage which would probably be close to being the worst film I've seen uh, so far in 2019 can't say I'm going to re-watch it um, but I imagine when I'm doing my list for the worst films of 2019 I'm going to have this one circled and highlighted through multiple times with big arrows saying worst so We'll see what happens, but check out those reviews. Um, I published them last week, and yeah, uh, quite a few people have checked them out. Um, and yeah, it'll be great if you could check them out if you haven't already. Make sure you also check out my reviews for my Halloween hangover. Uh, thanks to Eagle Entertainment for providing me copies of Jeepers Creepers 3, Ravenous, and Victor Crowley. I reviewed both of those films for you guys, and I had an absolute blast reviewing them because I didn't know too much about them. So I was coming in with fresh eyes and a fresh palette, and I did enjoy them for the most part. Um, they're enjoyable horror flicks that I can see joining my catalogue, I suppose, of uh, horror flicks in the Halloween um, Halloween season. So yeah, definitely check those ones out too if you haven't already. Um, this week I saw two new films. Um, one film I saw a while ago, but I finally had the chance to pick it up on Blu-ray, dissect it a little and I suppose watch it at my own accord take down my notes and really think about it. Um, and that was Ari Aster's sophomore effort, uh, his Swedish pagan horror flick, uh, Midsummer. And I'll be talking specifically about the director's cut because that's the cut I enjoy a little more of the film. Um, and I've been excited to talk about this one for quite some time. So I'm glad that I finally have the chance to do that. And the second film I saw was James Mangold's Ford v Ferrari, which is another film I was anticipating quite a bit and can safely say I had a great time in the cinema watching that one. I do apologize that there's this weird ambience of this review. I'll try and get rid of it as much as I can in editing. But um, yeah, my Xbox is doing updates at the moment because of where my Xbox is. I don't really want to turn it off. And yeah, so I do apologize if you do hear that weird ambience and if it makes a noise during the review. But it's neither here nor there. And yeah, it's, it's the best I can do. Um, and my Blu-ray of the week this week is thanks to Shock Entertainment Cinema Cult Collection, and that's Lucio Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy. Uh, three films that are great, and I'm glad that uh, Shock Entertainment have put out this copy on this Blu-ray because it's really good, um, and it's a great little collection. So stay tuned to the end of the episode for that. But that's enough talking. Um, subscribe, rate the podcast, do all that wonderful stuff. But let's get stuck into the reviews. Uh, the first film I saw was Midsummer: The Director's Cut. This film was written and directed by Ari Aster and stars Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner, Will Poulter, William Jackson Harper and Wilhelm Blomgren. I believe that's how you say his name. Um, 
and follows a couple who travels to Sweden to visit a rural hometown's fabled Midsummer Festival, which begins as an idyllic retreat but quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Um, this is a film I was thoroughly anticipating. I love the marketing campaign. I love A24 Pictures, probably my favourite film studio at the moment. Just love the stuff that they're doing. They're kind of like a Blumhouse that they give directors more of a free reign, but they also have a bit more faith in their directors too. So you have films like this that come out and are two hours and 50 minutes long, just absurd runtimes. But uh, this film actually got a theatrical release without the director's cut and then due to popular demand, came back to cinemas with the director's cut. I really like Ari Aster. I think he's a visionary and I really loved what he did last year with Hereditary. One of my favorite films of last year, if you remember my list that I posted on my Facebook page. Um, but I was a bit skeptical when reviews came out. They were overwhelmingly positive, which I expected. But it was just the general audience reception. And I don't normally take into account that. But I think because the film did bomb at the US box office, unfortunately, it made, I think it was $27 million. Um, Don't quote me on that, but that's what I'm going to go with. I think it was about 27 million, so it didn't make as much as Hereditary did, which was the studio's best effort. I think internationally bringing in about 70 mil and 45 million of that was in the USA, so it did pretty well. And Hereditary is a more accessible film than what this is because this is by no means a straightforward horror flick. There's some weird imagery, there's some weird pacing, there's some weird um, elements in the construction of the film as far as cinematography and direction goes. So. It is a very strange film, and I think that sort of throws a lot of people off, and I think that's why it didn't do as well at the box office, because it's a harder film to market. If you've watched the trailer for this film, I think you know exactly what you're getting into. I think it's a fantastic trailer too, which is a very artistic point in general. I think trailers have their own artistic merit without uh, influencing the film in general. Uh, sometimes a trailer can be fantastic and a film can be terrible, but I did enjoy the marketing campaign leading up to this film, and because of Ari Aster, I was keen to what he what he would do with his sophomore effort, and I'm happy to say I love this film. It's one of my favourites of the year. It's strange, it's weird, but it's exactly what I was hoping for in a strange way. I was hoping for a little more tension built throughout the film, and I don't get that as much here, but we'll get into all of this. So we'll start off with the positives of the film. My first is the setting. Um, beautiful, vibrant Sweden may be the most unsettling and unique setting for a horror flick I have seen in quite some time. We have this beautiful, overexposed, luscious field that is just gorgeous. And it's just that setting that puts you on edge during the whole film. Because when you're watching it, you're not... Uh, it's hard to explain. It's like watching... Let's compare it to... I'm going to go with The Conjuring Universe films, which is a completely different horror flick. I'm not comparing them because I think it's a bit unfair, but I'm talking about setting here. So we'll go with Annabelle Comes Home. This film is dark. It's got the weird mist all through the film um, and is more of your traditional horror setting where we have Midsummer, which is this beautiful, vibrant, lively atmosphere, gorgeous setting of these beautiful lush fields over in Sweden. We have uh, overexposed lighting from the daylight. I believe it was enhanced natural lighting, which is even cooler. I love that. Um, and it just looked fantastic. And it was such a unique uh, 
place to hold this film and I think it doesn't work without this setting. And I really like that Ariasta and A24 had the guts to go for this strange setting. We have like the off-putting nature of the cleanly, uh, the cleanliness of the outfits. All of the uh, cast are wearing these unsettling white robes. They're all linen robes and they just look increasingly creepy and I, I love that. Um, and I really liked the unnerving use of the lighting as well. I think because their friend, played by Wilhelm um, Blomgren, is such a nice guy too, that it sort of throws you off for the film. And I think that's traditional in that character archetype where he is the, traditionally, he is the nice guy that ends up being the bad guy. He is the nice guy, but he's not necessarily a bad guy as such. Like, they're a pagan cult, they're awful, but it's not painted that way and because there's such a large community involved with this pagan ritual it's just so off-putting and unkilted and i really enjoyed that aspect of the film and that setting just amplifies the tension to me to 11 because i just wasn't expecting it to be as vibrant and weird as what it is um the direction ariasta proves himself as a talent behind the lens and this is even more the case here he has improved on certain aspects of his direction from Hereditary, which is hard to say because Hereditary is nearly a horror masterpiece. It's fantastic. But he uses unique perspectives to tell the story. Uh, we cut between characters multiple times during the film. Um, we're pretty much with um, Florence Pugh's Danny during majority of the film, and I think that's the perspective that he's showing. But it's more of that third-party lens that we're watching it through where we visit each of the characters during some of the most bizarre sequences I have seen on big on the big screen and on the small screen in quite some time. And it is so weird and unsettling, but I loved it. Um, and Ariasta has the balls to actually go to these places. A lot of directors wouldn't go there. There's this really creepy scene with Jack Rayner's character and an underage girl and it's really off-putting and strange but it is really important to the story as well because it makes that whole finale which i'll get into worth it as weird as it is and uncomfortable as it is it is completely necessary and by underage i mean that she's of the legal age and it's not like rape or anything it's just the way that it's filmed and the, the perspective that it's taken it's very strange and very uncomfortable but it's completely necessary for the film and that final reveal at the end of the film. The cast. I really like Florence Pugh as Denny in the film. She's an emotionally damaged person with the death of her family at the beginning of the film. We do have a sense of tragedy to her character and she conveys that beautifully in the film. She's very quiet, but she's also being emotionally abused by her boyfriend. Jack Rayner's character is constantly on the defense and sort of pointing the blame at Denny during the film, and it's very unsettling to watch. There's a few arguments where she, she's damaged and she's having a rough go and she's attacking him, which she has every right to because he's being a complete and utter asshole, and he somehow works it back on her to make her apologize and make her an emotional wreck, and it's a really great look at mental health. Um, he did this in Hereditary as well because my take for the title of Hereditary was that mental illness in those circumstances does become sort of a hereditary thing. We see that the depression of Tony Collette's character pushed down on her children and it just creates this mess in the family and it's such a unique perspective and it's not talking about direct mental health but the implications of that and we see that again here and it's really well conveyed especially through uh, Florence Pugh you really see 
the emotional anguish but her frustrations as well because she's obviously mentally ill but she's also going through such a rough time as well that she has every right to act the way that she does um so at the beginning of the film her sister actually kills her mother and father and then kills herself and it's really awful um and that sort of sets the whole thing in motion because jack rayner and his friends are already planning to go overseas to sweden for this festival because they're all trying to work out what they're studying for their thesis um and florence Pugh's danny isn't going to go with them but due to the mental health issues that she's going through it's like jack rayner has an obligation to her which is fair enough because in all fairness he probably shouldn't be going overseas at this time but he invites her along with uh with them and that sort of sets the whole plot into notion i really enjoyed that um and i really enjoyed the way that it did show that emotional bullying from jack rayner's character and i thought it was very very powerful stuff and it was very well handled and i think ariasta does this kind of message very well um and now ever since transformers age of extinction jack rayner has been fantastic delivering top-notch performances one after the other if you haven't seen sing street he plays an older brother and he is fantastic in that film i loved him in that film i could easily review sing street right now because it's fucking amazing and not enough people have seen it but i really enjoyed that aspect um of the film as well it's more his relationship with danny and i think jack rayner conveys that dickish moronic behavior of sorts during the film and i I, i'll talk about his fate at the end of the review because i'm going to get into mild spoilers which i already have but i don't want to spoil too much but we'll get into that uh will polter was pretty good as well um as mark though i did think he was under uh, underutilized in the film um he is of course christian jack rayner's character's friend um overseas in um sweden with them but he's more of the boyish blokey bloke kind of character he just wants to go over and sleep with multiple women but he's also socially awkward so it kind of makes for an interesting trait um and i did enjoy will polter in the film but he does disappear for quite some time and i'm not talking about his death because we'll get into that too um but he does disappear for quite some time before um he does die in the film um and i think he's underutilized a bit I would have liked to have seen more of him um, because of his demise as well. It would have been interesting to maybe have seen that. Uh, he disappears with a woman um, during the film, and she's been eyeing him off all of the all of the film. So you think that maybe you know there might be something romantic going on between the two of them. But he comes back, and he's been stuffed to be like a scarecrow. Each of the characters' demises has something to do with the crops and everything. That's the way I take it anyway. Um, and Will Poulter's character has been stuffed with all this hay and it's really bizarre and it's such an unsettling uh, thing when he comes back and sees uh, William Jacob Jackson Harper's character and he's all swollen and he's bleeding from the mouth and it's a really unnerving image but I think to actually see him and what happened there that could have been interesting and maybe would have elevated the film just a little more for me. I would have enjoyed seeing that, as sadistic as that makes me sound. I just would have liked to have seen his demise because it was the most unsettling image of the film and I think it would have been a little more creepy just to see what happened there. Uh, there's no deleted scenes of that because majority of the deleted scenes have been included in this director's cut. Um, but I think I would have liked to have seen a bit more of him and that would have been a great way to showcase that because of how frightening that image was. And shout out to Wilhelm uh, Blomgren as well. 
as their Swedish friend who invites him over for this festival. Uh, he was great, deceptive, but also believable. You believed him as a nice guy. I would have been completely smitten by him, but if I ever meet a Swedish friend who invites me to his weird tribal family, I will not be attending. Um, but yeah, it was very, very realistic, and I really enjoyed his character, and he was very nice, especially to Danny during the film. He remembers a birthday where Christian Jack Rayner's character doesn't, and things like that, and he um, paints her a beautiful, or draws her a beautiful photo, like a self-portrait, um, and I really enjoyed that. Excuse me while I take a sip of beer, um, because I am enjoying a beverage whilst reviewing these movies, and I'm having a great time. So there's that. Um, and yeah, I really enjoyed the cast in general. It was the dynamic of this group of friends that made it very believable. Um, and like I said, I think uh, Wilhelm Blomgren was really good in the film. And I enjoyed seeing his dynamic with his friends. Uh, William Jackson Harper, who I haven't mentioned, he probably gets the most screen time out of the friends. We see him um, with Christian in particular. They have an argument about their thesis because... Uh, he wants to write his thesis on these um, traditions and stuff uh, over in Sweden or more Scandinavia in general, um, where Jack Rayner doesn't know what he wants to write his thesis on, but then he decides that, oh, hang on, I'm going to do this as well. And it sort of creates this tension between the two of them. And I enjoyed that, but it's not really explored. It's sort of thrown in there and then he dies and, yeah, that that's the end of that. So we don't really get enough of that tension. It's set up really well, and I really enjoyed that little fight that they do have, but would have liked to have seen a little more from that. Um, the ending as well. Uh, this is one of the more haunting endings I have ever seen in general, not just this year, just in general. It leaves you feeling uneasy and dirty, and I think that that's exactly what Ariasta was going for. Um, so I'm going to get into the ending now because I need to talk about it to explain what I liked about it. Pretty much at the end of the film, uh, Jack Rayner's character is told that he can sleep with uh, one of the girls at the festival because she has said that she's chosen him um, as the as the person she wants to lose her virginity to, um, and they've drugged him. Uh, they've been drugging them ever since they get there, but they keep drugging uh, Jack Rayner's character, and he's sort of psyching himself up to do it. And it just proves how much of an asshole he is during the film because even in the drug before the drugged up state, he is also kind of wanting to do it too. And it just proves that he is such a prick and he doesn't have any interest in Denny at all. He forgets a birthday. He's just not a nice guy. So when it happens, um, he sleeps with the woman. We get a really uncomfortable sex scene where there's a group of women around them chanting. Um, she is meant to be pregnant, the girl that he slept with afterwards. Um, and then we see him running around um, naked in the field. We see a lot of Jack Rayner's penis in this final scene, um, which is kind of uncomfortable, uh, very uncomfortable, uh, not kind of uncomfortable. Um, but it also is necessary for the plot. So yeah, for those who laugh and giggle, it's meant to be there. So it's completely necessary. Um, but he's running around and he sees the fate of his friends. They're all put up into certain poses. Um, we see, like I mentioned, Mark's character has got all the stuff stuffed in him to make him look like a scarecrow. Um, we see the other American family, um, which I haven't mentioned. Uh, Wilhelm Blomgren's character's brother invites over people from America, similar to how he's invited people over from America too. Um, and we see yeah, that... Um, he's been hung up in this shed in a very frightening manner. Um, and then 
we say that Jack Reiner is then drugged again um, and stuffed into a bear suit um, or a, an actual bear, not a bear suit. It would have been a bear suit as a costume, but it's an actual bear. Um, and it is very uncomfortable and such a gruesome image, but it really works for the final reveal at the end of the film. Um, pretty much Florence Pugh's character has become the May Queen. She is uh, a pretty high up um, role within this cult now and without really knowing because she doesn't really have an idea what's going on because she's drugged out of her mind too. But we get this final look when she sees all of her friends are being put into this weird forbidden house at the end of the um, at the end of the fields and sees her boyfriend there and they're all set on fire. Um, all of them are dead except Jack Rayner, who is still alive in this bear, um, but he's rendered speechless because he can't talk. I think he's paralyzed. Um, and yeah, it's such a such a really haunting way to end the film. And um, the film ends with a final shot of Florence Pugh smiling. Um, and I think that's meant to be sort of a nod to say that she was okay with it and she's accepting her role now within this pagan cult. Um, I haven't watched any analysis videos. This is just the way I'm taking it. Um, and it's such an unnerving and uncomfortable way to end the film. But at the same time, it really does work. And to me, it left me feeling, I, I think, fulfilled. I, I think that's exactly what I was expecting to happen in the film. Um, in, in the way, in the sense that I was expecting there to be a demise and something positive to come out of it for her character. Because she's just beaten down relentlessly during this film. And then... Finally, she has a sense of relief, and that is the relief that her boyfriend is no longer going to emotionally abuse her, and she's out of the relationship on her own accord, and I did really enjoy that. Um, but yeah, it was really well done, um, and such a great ending, and I thoroughly enjoyed the way it concluded. The criticisms I've seen from people is that maybe Jack Renner didn't deserve his fate, and I think in the context of the story, I'm not saying that anyone who is involved in a relationship and is kind of an asshole deserves to be stuffed into a bear. All I'm saying is that the character in general, he is an asshole, and in the context of the story, this is probably the fate that he did deserve. I'm not necessarily saying that what is done is completely his fault, but he does act like an asshole before he's drugged, and then after he's drugged, he's still a complete asshole. And it's just that, yeah, that that steady progression during the film. We see different aspects, and we do have uh, Wilhelm Blomgren's character sort of playing a, a, a wench in in a certain sense because he does provide a bit of a spanner in the works during the film. Um, yeah, and he sort of provides conflict between the two of them, but it's done in a way where he's still in the wrong and regardless of what this character's doing he's still not doing the right thing so yeah i think that the fate is necessary for the final reveal at the end of the film and it's not this big reveal but it's a reveal that's important to her character and i really enjoyed that um as far as horror sequences go there's two scares during the film that would be considered traditional scares one of them's in the trailer um it's when they first arrive and um they smoke a bit of pot um Denny's having a bit of a trip and she goes into the bathroom and the light flickers and you see someone standing behind her. Um, it looks like it's her sister. Um, so it's not, I don't, it's not literally a ghost. It's just that haunting memory in the um, cannabis has sort of triggered that in her mind. Um, and it's not a traditional scare in the sense that there's no jump noise or anything, a uh, jump scare noise. It's just 
plain and simple, and I really enjoyed that. Um, the other is a brutal sequence um, that's a part of the tradition um, when characters reach, or when people, the characters in the film, when people reach the age of 70, they've reached the end of their usefulness, so they have to pretty much sacrifice themselves. So we get these brutal, horrific injuries from these people committing suicide. Um, the first is a lady who jumps face first onto a rock, and it is honestly one of the most gory, realistically gory sequences I have seen in quite some time. And it was effective, though, because it made me think, fuck me, that looks like it hurt. Um, and we get another brutal sequence where the guy that follows her jumps as well but lands um, incorrectly because he's distracted because the Americans have no idea what's going on and they're screaming out for them not to jump. Um, and then he's beaten to death with a bat and it's just fucking brutal and it was awful but it was pretty confronting and I think that's why it's frightening. Um, it was just the way that it was handled. It was really well done. There's a lack of music and score in this film too. We get some unnerving beats from a fiddle or a violin um, that was quite well done uh, and it was not as frequent but the use of silence is really eerie because they have chants and different tunes that they sing in their rituals and it's quite uncomfortable and that in particular made me feel really uneasy and very unnerving so um yeah that was that was quite freaky um i do have one negative with the film um i think the lack of reveals can be seen as both a positive and a negative i like the vagueness and that it is left up to the interpretation of the audience as well um, and it doesn't reveal too much, but at the same time, I was kind of hoping for a little more explanation. I don't want to be spoon-fed by any means, but I would have liked to have seen maybe those characters' demises and maybe the preparation in their final forms in this hut um, where Will Poulter's mark is made into a, a scarecrow and the other guys hung up in the shed. Um, I would have liked to have seen that because I think it would have provided explanation um, to the events without it feeling forced. I don't need an exposition dump, but maybe seeing those sequences would have provided those answers without feeling forced, which is something that we don't re we don't get very often. So it's a, a rarity, and I, I think I would have liked to have seen that. Um, but it's a catch-22, really, because I don't like things being spoon-fed to me, but at the same time, I do need that explanation. Um, but nevertheless, I thoroughly enjoyed this film, and that's a very minor gripe. And it's nothing that really detracted too much from the film for me. But a few pacing issues as well. Um, like I said, it's it's a 2 hour and 52 minute movie. It's a very long fucking movie. But it is paced relatively well just in the middle portion. Um, I did have to pause it for a bit um, on the director's cut because, yeah, it, it just sort of detracted a bit for me. Um, the director's cut is the definitive cut of the film. though. This is the scenario for me personally that... I can't watch the theatrical cut now after seeing this director's cut. It adds too much to the story and it's integral, I think, to the development of the characters and it does feel more complete. So if you're going to watch it, please pick it up on Blu-ray or DVD um, because I just don't think that the theatrical cut is going to give audiences what they want. You need the director's cut. It doesn't provide any additional scares or anything. It just provides additional details to enjoy the film a little more. Uh, which I did, and I thoroughly enjoyed the director's cut, and I couldn't recommend it enough. Definitely pick it up on Blu-ray or DVD. Um, I think the director's cut is on DVD. I've only got the Blu-ray, but pick it up from Sanity, JB Hi-Fi, Amazon, wherever you're going to pick it up from, definitely pick it up. Um, my verdict for Midsummer: 
Midsummer the director's cut is the definitive cut of the film. It's a strange horror flick, but is one of the more unique films I have seen in 2019. Ariast approves he is one to watch behind the camera and one of the best working in the business today. With this sophomore effort, and I'm giving Midsummer the director's cut a 9 out of 10. I thoroughly enjoyed this film, guys, and I'm glad I finally got the chance to talk about it. I initially saw it when it came out in August in Australia, but then I picked up the Blu-ray in November, and I'm very happy I got to talk about it because not enough people did talk about this film. We had the regular critics' reviews and the ending explained from found flicks, but I haven't watched either of those yet. I haven't really searched for um, reviews, and I haven't read into it too much, but I did know that one of the criticisms was that final reveal, but I enjoy this film a lot, and I couldn't recommend it highly enough, so please check this one out, guys, if you haven't already. Um, I'll leave a link down below to pick it up from Sanity, because that's where I picked it up from, and it is a really good-looking Blu-ray, and like I said, the director's cut is the definitive cut of the film, so check that one out. Alright, guys, let's get stuck into Ford v. Ferrari. Ford v. Ferrari was directed by James Mangold and stars Matt Damon, Christian Bale, Josh Lucas, John Berthnall, Noah Jupe, and Katriana Balfi. I believe that's how you say her name. I apologize if I've completely butchered it. And Tracy Letts. Um, and follows American car designer Carol Shelby and driver Ken Miles who battle corporate interference, the laws of physics, and their own personal demons to build a revolutionary race car for Ford Motoring and challenged Ferrari at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1966. This was a film that I have been following closely uh, since it was announced back in 2016. It was in development for a long time, um, and James Mangold finally got the project landed on his desk, obviously. Um, and he proves to be a formidable force in Hollywood, uh, with films like 310 to Yuma, Walk the Line, and Logan, which I think is probably his best film to date. Matt Damon and Christian Bale involved as well. And a return from Josh Lucas, who it feels like we haven't really seen him in a film in God knows how long. Uh, he was in Red Dog, uh, the Australian flick, but I don't think too many people have actually seen that film. Um, but yeah, it was good to see him back on the screen. Uh, so this had the makings of something special, and with a $97 million budget, which is something we don't necessarily see with this kind of film, I was excited. So how was Ford v Ferrari? I really enjoyed this film. Um, it was one of the better cinematic experiences I've had this year, despite some sound issues I had with my cinema um, that I'm not going to detract the film for, but yeah, that cinema definitely needs to fix its speakers. Um, but it was a film that I think was really well directed, uh, well acted, and just an all-round good time. So what did I like about 4V Ferrari? The cast, uh, no-brainer here. Christian Bale steals the film as Ken Miles. He's fantastic. Um, that's not taking away from Matt Damon, who I thought was fantastic as well as Carol Shelby. But Bale is just so energetic, and he's larger than life here. He's very, I suppose, like I said, yeah, larger than life. He's very... Um, very charismatic and I really enjoyed that because we haven't necessarily seen a lot of that from Bale. We've got bits and pieces here and there, but he's typically your... I suppose he's played a smug businessman before, but he's not really smug here. He's just loving what he's doing, but he's also right all the time. And I really enjoyed that arrogance. And I think that he really, really exudes that on screen. And I really enjoy Bale here. And I think this is one of his better performances in recent memory. Um, I didn't 
hate him in Vice, but I just didn't really like what Adam McKay did with that film. It was kind of a disappointment considering how good The Big Short was. Um, but yeah, I, I think Bale here was really, really good, and I, I love seeing him again on screen. And I really liked Josh Lucas here. Um, he played the evil VP um, for Ford Motoring at the time, and I really liked him. He was... Um, I didn't like his character. I thought his character was a bag of shit, but I really, really enjoyed Josh Lucas. I thought he was thoroughly entertaining and believable as this narcissistic asshole, and I really enjoyed that. Um, the story in general, this is a feel-good story and is a really, really well-paced story as well. It's not it's not necessarily um, fast-paced, but it, it does take its time telling the story um, in a in a good way. Um, this is a two and a half hour film, but it doesn't feel like two and a half hours. Uh, the second act does drag a little, but I really enjoyed the way it was structured, and I liked seeing Shelby's fall at the start of the film after he won Le Mans. Uh, we see he then spirals a little, but then he goes into car salesman, and he seems pretty happy, but I think he finds his niche here working for Ford and designing motor cars because it's what he loves and what he's good at. So I really enjoyed him putting together this team to create this car and I liked the way that the story focused on that, then Ken's driving and then the execution at Le Mans and I really, really liked it and I, I liked the way that that was structured during the film. Um, I also really liked the bromance between Shelby and Miles. Um, I thought it was fantastic and I thoroughly enjoyed their relationship. It was a believable relationship. Um, we got a great sequence that was in the second trailer where they're fighting on the lawn um, that sort of highlighted the bromance. Um, I just thought it was fantastic. and I liked the chemistry between Bale and Damon. They worked really well together and it was crazy to think that they haven't actually been on screen together because they felt so natural in their roles and I really enjoyed seeing the two of them together. Um, and it was a great father-son story as well with Ken's kid, um, Pete, played by Noah Jupe, who was also very great for a child actor. Um, and I really enjoyed the two of them together on screen too. I really liked their relationship. Um, it was touching and really heartfelt, especially considering Ken's demise at the end of the film, um, which isn't a spoiler because it's history and he did pass away. Um, but I really liked their relationship as well, and I thought it was a really good story in that regard. And I really liked seeing um, the relationship too between Christian Bale and Catriona uh, Balfi's character who plays his wife um, she comforts him when he's down but also believes in him and I really enjoyed that in the film too there's a great sequence where the two of them are arguing and she's speeding up the road and she's going to keep speeding unless he tells her why or what he's up to with uh, Carol Shelby and Ford and I really liked it um, it was a great relationship between the two of them and I've said relationship a lot there but yeah it's really a film that's built on them so I really liked that uh, aspect of the film uh, the racing sequences as well uh, the racing sequences for me were fantastic Mel uh, Mangold I was going to say Mel Gibson I don't know why um, James Mangold shoots them beautifully with wide shots um, and he cuts and edits between inside the car outside the car what's going on around the car I really liked that um, the film is edited by Andrew Buckland Michael McCuster and Dirk Westervelt um, very rarely do you see th edit uh, three editors on the film. That was a rarity for me anyway um, when researching it. And I thought, oh, that's very strange. But it seems to work because we see the precision of the driving as well as what's going on in the pits and what's going on outside the car. 
and it was shot in IMAX too, so it just looked fantastic. Um, like I said, my cinema had terrible sound, so I couldn't really hear some of the dialogue during these sequences. Um, but nevertheless, um, it was really well, really well edited and really well helmed by James Mangold. Um, the pacing as well, like I said, besides that 15-minute portion in the middle of the film, uh, which I thought was a bit of a letdown, um, this is a tightly edited script with little uh, wriggle, wor- <laughs> wiggle room, wriggle room, my God, my tongue is getting tired. Um, for a shorter runtime, I think it's compelling enough throughout to keep you invested for its two-and-a-half-hour runtime, which is a rarity as well in Hollywood. You don't see films with that kind of runtime that are able to do that. But this year seems to be the year for it. Uh, Parasite, um, just before mid um, midsummer, I'm having a shocker. Uh, midsummer, Doctor Sleep, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, films that are exceptionally long but helmed and edited well enough that they are completely fine with these absurd runtimes on paper, but they don't feel it when you're watching it. So a credit to Hollywood this year for absurd runtimes that they're able to pull off. Um, the music as well. The music in the film is well composed and feels very much like a product of its time. Uh, you hear the tunes from the 1960s as well, but also the pulsating score from uh, composers Marco Beltrami and Buck Sander, who do a fantastic job with the score, and it really elevates those race sequences and elevates the drama during the film too, and it was done really well, and I, I love that. Um, the sound design, uh, this is a great sounding film. I love the sound of the cars racing, the crashes, the motors and engines. I'm not really good with car terminology, but... I think that's what all those things are called, um, correct me. Um, but this is a fantastic sounding film. I really love that aspect. And I loved when the sound was blended really well with the race sequences and then the score and then the dialogue. It was just really well done. And I, I, I commend the sound team overall, this composer, music, soundtrack, everything was just fantastic. So kudos to everyone involved there. Um, But like I said, I do have a couple of negatives with the film. Um, The pacing in the second act did slow down for a little, like I did say. Um, It was a little noticeable for that 15-minute period that I think could have been trimmed a little. Um, But at the same time, I think that it's probably necessary to tell the story. It's just very hard to weasel down that that runtime, especially considering the story that's being told. Um, But yeah, I, I think that's a very very minute criticism and my other criticism comes with the fact that the italian ferrari drivers were painted as wacky race-esque villains um they might as well have had large handlebar mustaches and twirled them during the whole film it reminded me a lot of sasha baron cohen's uh, jean gerard from talladega Nights. um they were just comically over the top and because of how grounded the rest of the story is it kind of felt unnecessary and definitely detracted and pulled me out of the film during it. I was expecting one sequence when um, Ken overtakes one of the Ferrari drivers to him for him to pull up a cup of tea like Sasha Baron Cohen does in Talladega Nights. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, and it definitely sort of detracted me from the film and I definitely felt um, yeah, out of it during those sequences and I, I just think it was unnecessary. Um, Enzo Ferrari's character is fine during the film. Um, he's not over the top and he's suitably angry during the film um which apparently from all accounts he was but it was just those sequences with the actual race car drivers i thought was kind of weird and definitely didn't feel like it was a part of the film tonally 
Um, but I don't know the creative choices behind that. So I'm not entirely sure um, why that happened. But yeah, um, and a special shout out to Tracy Letts as well, who played Henry Ford um, the second. I thought he was quite good in the film. Uh, he comes across as rich, pompous businessman. Um, he comes across as an asshole during the film, but he was really good and he sold that to me. And I didn't mention John Berthenol. Uh He's great too. Uh, he has a really great sequence at the beginning of the film where he's negotiating with Enzo Ferrari um, about partnering with them during the um, Ford and Ferrari during the Le Mans um, and the racing circuit. Um, but due to some contractual problems um, that falls through, but I really liked seeing John Berthenol on screen. Um, he's a formidable actor too and has a lot to offer, but he seems to be handed a lot of these supporting roles in films, um, but he shined as the Punisher in uh, Netflix's The Punisher series, so I'd like to see a little more of him, but I really liked him and that whole Ford dynamic. It felt very toxic and it was re relayed to us as the audience as well, especially with that final uh, part of the Le Mans race where Cam Miles was forced to, well, not forced, he made it on his, the decision on his own accord, but he did slow down so that the three um, cars, one of them driven by a Bruce McLaren, uh, finished at the same time. And yeah, you sort of feel that toxicity in the corporate world um, for Ford, especially in the 1960s as well. And just the overall goal was to make money and to win. Um, they didn't really care about you know, the prestige that comes with racing, and that's prevalent during the film too. Henry Ford pisses off during the 24 Hours Le Mans. He's gone um, on a date with a beautiful Italian woman, um, and it's, yeah, it is what it is, but I thought that was handled really well, and I liked that aspect of having a look at that toxicity in the corporate world, and I thought all the performances, like I said, Josh Lucas was great, John Berthnall was great, and Tracy Letts was really good too, so... Hopefully the film makes money. Um, it seems like films that I like this year aren't making money, but um, as long as creatively it is acknowledged, especially when it comes to award season, uh, this film isn't acknowledged for its uh, sound design and possibly even uh, James Mangold's direction. It's not really a film that goes for that best picture, best director Oscar, but it's something that definitely could skate by for my liking anyway. But We'll see what happens. I don't put a lot of stock into the Oscars anymore due to just the over-politicized nature of them and the fact that Black Panther was nominated for 13 Oscars or whatever the fuck and it didn't deserve a single one of them, especially Best Special Effects, which is one of the biggest jokes. And Bohemian Rhapsody winning Best Editing last year was one of the biggest jokes as well. How First Man didn't win Best Editing is beyond me. I do not understand, but... Whatever, that is a completely different conversation. 4V Ferrari, good movie. Uh, so let's get into the verdict. Uh, 4V Ferrari is a blast to watch in the cinema. It's compelling, smart, and superbly crafted, both in front of and behind the camera. One of the best cinematic experiences of 2019 for sure, and I'm giving 4V Ferrari a 9 out of 10. Uh, definitely go and see this one on the big screen, guys. I was a bit skeptical when it comes to biopics, but... I absolutely adored this film. Matt Damon, Christian Bale are fantastic. Josh Lucas, which I'm going to sing his praises because he's rarely in films anymore. But yeah, fantastic all around, guys. And James Mangold continues to do fantastic things behind the camera. Cannot wait to see what he does next. Um, but yeah, that is 4V Ferrari. Now let's get into the Blu-ray of the week. This week's Blu-ray of the week is 
of course, Gates of Hell Trilogy by Lucio Fulci, uh, thanks to Shock Entertainment. You can pick it up down below. I've left a link. Let's get stuck into this one, shall we? This week's Blu-ray of the Week is brought to you by Shock Entertainment Cinema Cult Collection and is the Gates of Hell Trilogy from writer-director Lucio Fulci, um, B-movie or tour from the 1980s. And the Gates of Hell Trilogy consists of City of the Living Dead, uh, The Beyond, and uh, House by the Cemetery. Three films that I... I actually did own The Beyond beforehand um, on Blu-ray, a Cinema Cult release, of course, as well. Um, but I had never actually seen City of the Living Dead and hadn't seen House by the Cemetery either, but I'm glad that I had the chance to see all of these. So Lucio Fulci's legendary Gates of Hell trilogy packed together in a deluxe slipcase and at a special price of $39.99 on the Shock Entertainment website. Uh, City of the Living Dead, a reporter and a psychic race to close the gates of hell after the suicide of clergymen caused them to open, allowing the dead to rise from the grave. Uh, this is a film that I, like I said, I wasn't very familiar with, um, and I think it goes into that whole thing of Lucio Fulci's filmography in general. He is a B movie director, but a director that is also very passionate. And if you've seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood this year, you know exactly the type of films that um, Italian directors made in the 1970s and 80s, and it was capitalizing on Hollywood trends. Lucio Fulci, of course, capitalizing here on George Romero's filmography, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead. Um, and I think that for the most part, it is an enjoyable film. I really like the way that this film plays. It is quite funny. It's over the top. And I think that is the aspect of the film that you enjoy the most. You don't want a boring horror flick. You want something that you can latch onto and you can find entertaining. Uh, this film starred Christopher George, uh, Katarina McCall, uh, Carla de Majo, and Giovanni um, Lombardo. Um, and yeah, it is a film that I find to be quite, quite entertaining for the most part. I think the transfer is good enough too. Um, this is the best this film is ever going to look. And thank you so much to Cinema Cult for uh, and Shock Entertainment um, for putting this release out because not enough people know enough about Lucio Fulci's uh, filmography. If you've seen the Red Letter Media guys do reviews of the best of the worst, and it's pretty much 1970s and 80s horror flicks, action flicks, sci-fi flicks that they find um, that not a lot of people have seen. Um, and these are films that normally release on VHS and get the Blu-ray releases from Cinema Cult or Shock Entertainment. Um, and yeah, it, it's fantastic that this film was able to be released. As far as a Blu-ray transfer goes, this film looks fantastic. I really like that cinema grain that is kept on each of these releases in this uh, trilogy. Uh, the packaging is beautiful. Um, it's in the episode art in the top right corner if you want to have a look at it, but it is fantastic. Um, and yeah, I, I think as far as the Blu-ray release of City of the Living Dead, I think it is quite a good looking film and transfers over quite well to the 2K restoration. So I'm going to give City of the Living Dead a 6 out of 10 um, as a film um, and as a Blu-ray release, this is a 10 out of 10. Um, like I said, there's not enough of these films out there and I'm so happy that Cinema Cult are releasing them because it gives 
audiences such as myself a chance to check out these films that are so iconic and yeah it's fantastic so the second film is the beyond like i said i previously owned the cinema cult release of this with the slip cover and everything and it is a gorgeous film uh, a young woman inherits an old hotel in louisiana where after a series of supernatural accidents she learns that the building was built over um, the entrances to hell, so another gates of hell type scenario. Um, the Beyond is a film that I had seen before, um, and it was the only one out of the films I had seen before. Um, this film also stars uh, Katarina McCall as well, which was, of course, in The City of the Living Dead, uh, David Warbeck, and, of course, Veronica Lazar. Um, and like I said before, this is probably my favourite out of the three films I watched from the Gates of Hell trilogy. Um, the link, of course, being that these incidences happen over the gates of hell um, and a few acting credits as well that um, transfer over between all three films. But apart from that connection, it's not a trilogy of the characters themselves, but a trilogy of the events that take place, um, which is quite entertaining. And if you're a fan of this type of filmmaking as well, I think you also really enjoy... Um, what the beyond has to offer there's over-the-top effects which is fantastic and what you look for um, there's great atmosphere that Lucio Fulci built with all of his films and I think that's because of the real sets and locations the idea of a haunted um, hotel of sorts is quite fascinating and a really good setting for a horror flick so I enjoyed that as well um, and I really like the blu-ray transfer here too um, such a great looking film um, and I like that all of the the effects and everything transfer over the way that they do. Like I said before, I enjoy Cinema Grain on my films, and Cinema Cult keep that intact for the most part on their releases. Um, and I see people criticize that, and I don't really know why. And I understand because it's a Blu-ray, you want it to look crisp and neat. But at the same time, I think it's even better for them to be a relic of that time period and I really enjoy that this film feels like it's completely intact, and I really, really like that. Um, and it's such a great-looking film in that respect. So, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed this release, um, and, yeah, it's a great entry in the in the Gates of Hell trilogy. Um, so I'm going to give this as a film an 8 out of 10, and as a Blu-ray release, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Um, it's not as good as The City of the Living Dead's release just because of the bit of cin cinema grain um, that, yeah, I, I suppose the sound as well um, dips a little in this film. But for the most part, this is a great release um, that you should definitely check out if you haven't. Um, yeah, and I'm going to give, yeah, like I said, an 8 out of 10 and a 9 out of 10 for that one. The final release in the Gates of Hell trilogy is House by the Cemetery. A doctor and his family moved to an isolated house in the woods that belonged to a friend who was undertaking some strange research. A series of mysterious happenings and murders ensue, all leading towards something particularly gruesome dwelling in the basement. Um, this is a film that I was interested to see. Um, for the sheer fact, I love the setting, The House by the Cemetery. I love cemetery settings. If you haven't seen the episode of The Simpsons where Lisa is terrified of the cemetery next door i feel like there's a bit of an homage to this film in particular um lisa has to overcome her fears and sleep in the cemetery and i feel a lot of um resemblance between the two films in that regard 
And I really enjoyed this film. This is by no means the best in the trilogy. Um, but at the same time, I think that because of the the setting and the premise as well for this horrific things to happen, I really enjoyed the yeah yeah the overall setting of the film. I like the idea of the cemetery being next door. It provides with some really gruesome um, horror moments that are present in the other two films, but I feel like they're even more realized here, and I really enjoyed that aspect. I also think that um, Katarina McCall is really good here. I think this is probably the best she's been in all three films, but you really feel the dread of the situation, and I think Lucia Fulci really captures the atmosphere again here. I love the set. I love the idea of the cemetery being next to the house um, and the overall plot as well. And some of the effects on um, some of the corpses and the uh, the killer as well, I think is quite fascinating and really looks good considering that this film is, you know, 40 years old. And I think it just really, really does look fantastic. So yeah, if you haven't seen The House by the Cemetery, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think my ranking of these three films definitely goes the beyond, followed by House of the, um, by the Cemetery, and then uh, City of the Living Dead comes in at three. But yeah, this is a fantastic looking Blu-ray um, release of these for all three films. But um, for this one in particular, I'm giving the film a 7.5 out of 10, and I'm going to give the Blu-ray release of this a 10 out of 10. Another example of a film that translates well over to this Blu-ray format in 2K, but also looks really good um, with the cinema grain as well. I enjoy that that was kept intact when transferring over to the Blu-ray because I think it adds to the film and it definitely feels like a product of the time period. And I don't think there's a better release of these three films. So I've left a link down below to pick up the Gates of Hell trilogy from Shock Entertainment. It's at a low price of $39.99 at the moment, which is fantastic. So uh, click down below and pick up your own copy of it on Blu-ray because I do think it looks fantastic and it's something that horror fans definitely need as a part of their collection um, because not enough people know about Lucio Fulci's filmography. So it's fantastic that Shock Entertainment and um, Shock Entertainment Cinema Cult have put this out and yeah, it looks fantastic. So pick that one up if you haven't already. Um, and if you have, let me know what you think of these three films, three films that are thoroughly entertaining and worth your time if you haven't checked them out. But that brings this episode to a close, guys. So thank you very much for listening. I look forward to more reviews coming soon. Um, I will have reviews, hopefully, of a few new releases coming up. Um, it sort of gets a bit quiet at the end of November, heading into December. We don't have a great deal of films. I don't know if I have the strength to review Charlie's Angels. I will see how I go. Um, but that film is at the bottom of my barrel as far as um, <laughs> reviewing goes because yeah, I just don't know if I want to go and see it. But I said the same thing about 47 Meters Down Uncaged and I reviewed that one for you guys, so I guess we'll see. Um, definitely pick up Midsummer as well, the director's cut from Sanity JB Hi-Fi, wherever you can find it. Um, it is such a great director's cut. Um, like I said, though, it's my definitive cut of the film, so... It's just the way I viewed it. If you like the theatrical cut more, that's fair enough. But my review solely focused on the uh, cinematic, uh, the cinematic director's cut. But yeah, definitely check that one out if you haven't already. And for V Ferrari as well, it's in cinemas now, so check that one out too. But 
Thank you all for listening. Um, if you like this review, definitely rate it down below. Subscribe as well so you don't miss another episode. And yeah, thank you guys. Check out my other reviews that are out there too. Um, I reviewed Dr. Sleep and 47 Meters Down Uncaged recently as well. Um, but yeah, thank you all for listening. Your support means a great deal to me. Um, and until next time, guys, peace out.